Welcome to the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of McMinnville podcast. Founded in 2007, UUFM is a gathering place for people who embrace a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We are located in the heart of Oregon's Willamette Valley wine country. Please visit us on the web at macuuf.org, M-A-C-U-U-F dot org. And if you are ever in or near the McMinnville area, don't hesitate to stop by and visit us. UUFM gathers in love and service for justice and peace. It is my honor and pleasure to introduce Dr. Miles Davis. He is the 20th president of Linfield College. Davis has a PhD in human and organizational sciences from the George Washington University, an MA in human resource development, and a BA in communications. He was the inaugural chair of the management science department at the Harry F. Byrd Jr. School of Business and became the founding director of its Institute uh, for Entrepreneurship. (laughs) The brace is caught on my lips with that one. Um, Dr. Davis went on to become the dean of the Harry F. Byrd Jr. School of Business. Organizations manage cultural and structural changes, strategic planning, leadership development, and strategic growth initiatives. He is here today to talk about unity. Please welcome him. Einstein says, or said, in a divinely ordered world, there is no such thing as coincidence. And so when I heard the singing of the hymn, and that last refrain during the wintertime offering love, hope, and a rose in the wintertime. Then I heard my dear sister, Ronnie LaCoute, offer her concerns about a family member. I know that some of you have concerns about family members and friends and just chose not to share them. But I want to ask you to go back to that hymn because wintertime is a season that is actual, actual and metaphorical. Wintertime is a time of darkness. It is a time where it gets a little colder. There's a chill in the air. Wintertime is a time where the sun doesn't shine as brightly. We all go through winter times in our lives. So I'm just going to ask you just to take that hymn and hold on to that for a little bit longer. And I want you to hold on to the fact that we can offer love, hope, and rose in a winter time. Can you just do that with me for 30 seconds? Can you hold on to that for 30 seconds? Good morning, community. 
Let's try that again. Where I come from, there's a call and response tradition. So let's try that one more time. Good morning, community. Good morning. Uh, I like it. So uh, it's, it's interesting coming to a Unitarian community to just discuss unity. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's what you do, right? It's, it's Unitarian. Um, so being the, the researcher that I am, you know, I, I like to dig into things. I like to dig into constructs and words and meaning to understand underlying things because I think sometimes we get careless. We get careless in our use of words and we get careless in our things and we forget that words have meaning, and quite frankly, I would even offer that words have power. So I want, I want to play with this a little bit more and explore some questions with you and then explore some possible responses to the questions, if that's okay with you. Okay, so, so unity, unity is most commonly defined as a state of being united or joined as a whole. However, this simple definition is challenged by the inherent diversity of human beings. In fact, even as we come to celebrate, at least most of us, celebrate diversity in our communities, our places of worships, and even our nations, we still find ourselves talking about differences all the time. So how do we achieve Unity in the midst of differences. Yeah, that was my response, too, when you, she shook her hand. It was like, so, so again, digging around a little bit more, so I began to look at the principles of the Unitarian Universalist Foundation, and I began to dig into the principles, and the fifth principle jumped out at me. The fifth principle jumped out at me. Don't worry, I'm not going to test you. I'm going to read it. I'm going to tell you what it is. <laughs> so the fifth principle jumped out at me. The fifth principle says, the right of conscience in the use of democratic processes within our congregations and the society at large. That's what it says. Sounds wonderful, right? But even this principle, simple on its face, holds contradictions to the notion of unity. An exploration of key words in this principle will illustrate what I'm referring to. For instance, conscience. So conscience is an inner feeling or voice viewed as an acting guide to the rightness or wrongness of one's behavior. Your conscience guides your behavior. It is that inner voice that tells you what is right or wrong. That's what the word conscience means. And then there's that word democratic. I'm not talking about a political party. Talking about the word. Democratic. So democratic is used as an adjective. And so it describes a society which is a group of people who make decisions together where each vote is equally counted. Sounds wonderful, right? But fails to consider this very construct fails to consider that the inner voice 
that people are listening to is shaped by divergent life experiences, which in turn produces different perspectives on what is right or what is wrong. And if we look at the whole thing about democratic processes, it sounds wonderful. However, the focus on collective decision-making, the democratic process, and the inherent assumption of majority rule often ignores and fails to protect the rights of minority. In fact, can be referred to sometimes as the tyranny of the majority. I point these things out not because I'm opposed to anything being said here, but because we need to think hard about how do we achieve unity in a divided world where people have a different source that forms their conscience and where just because most people are for or against a thing neither makes it right or wrong. How can we work to operate on the same principles of right and wrong as well as protect minority rights? Now, I also need to take a, a quick moment here because uh, unfortunately words shift in meaning and may mean different things than how I'm thinking about them because when I use the word minority, I'm talking about a numerical thing because people often refer to me as a minority which is actually numerically incorrect. <laughs> okay, I just want to pause there for a second. Just <laughs> deal with that. Okay, so I am talking about numbers. You know, even now we're having conversations, and again, this is not a political statement. I'm just going to illustrate the point that we're having conversations whether you can change something by a simple majority or do you have a super uh, majority. And even in that, even in that most democratic of discussions, does it make it right or does it make it wrong? And so I ask you to explore that. So what I want to do is discuss some constructs that different faith traditions have used as they talk about true unity, and then we'll discuss how can we amplify and come to some consensus around this. So one offer is that true unity can be found in the one. Now that one which is eternal and absolute, in Islam the construct is referred to as Tawheed, the Arabic word, and Tawheed is unification around the oneness of God. Christianity teaches us unity is found in the love of God. Colossians 13, 3, 13, 14 says, Bear 
with each other, forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord has forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. The notion of unity in the Jewish tradition often refers, if you look in the Torah, it talks about the unity of the Jewish people. However, that unity is based within the shared love of God. Nishiren Buddhism has one of its core tenets to create harmonious unity among fellow practitioners in order to widely spread its humanistic philosophy. Chants, chants are done with the spirit of many in body, but one in mind. So what do these things have in common? And so if you look at the underlying constructs of these philosophies, you will see that all of them, in fact, recognize that indeed people are different, but can be united in a purpose. Can be united in a purpose. And that oneness resides in the eternal and absolute Godhead or love if you will. Uh, as all teach that there is something bigger than ourselves and act out of love for that we should unite. I will tell you that one of the clear places where you will find a lack of unity is when you begin to engage with people or a person that believe that they are the absolute end all. That people don't believe that something is bigger than them. They think that they are the absolute rightness or wrongness so thereby we're going to have this unity because you're not agreeing with me. They have no higher purpose. What's the higher purpose? This same philosophy is reflected in marriage vows that can be found in Christian texts, and I pulled one from Matthew, and it says that the two shall become one flesh. Let's be clear. It wasn't saying that you'll become one, even though my wife will tell you that I often get underneath her skin. <laughs> but the reality is that we are two separate people. And so what was it talking about that, that two become one? Um, they become united in what? In love. And they become united in purpose. And that purpose, that purpose doesn't stop because they're different, but what they share in their unity is respect to the love they share and the common purpose of creating a home. They're trying to create a home. That's what the united and flesh is about. You don't obliterate your differences. You come together for a higher purpose and united in love. So this led me to thinking about this great country. I, I, I feel the need to say this. This country's been great for a long time. Despite all her flaws and imperfections, the traditional model of this country is E Pluribus Unum. 
It is an acknowledgement that indeed we are a diverse people. At the time of its original recording in 1776, they referred to the 13 colonies. Those colonies had divergent interests. They had divergent economies. They had divergent people. They had divergent belief systems. In fact, uh, I find it interesting uh, that we often overlook in the teaching of our history that the reason that people came to this country um, was because they were escaping religious persecution in another country, and that they came here seeking the freedom to express themselves as I listen to those talk about that we should all be one thing. We forget that people came here escaping that notion of being one thing. I also feel the need to point out that when people arrived here, that there were also already people who were here, and that we had to also deal with that issue. I feel the need to also point out <laughs> that there were different ways and different practices that were done in this country. We were not all one, but we believed in e pluribus unum, out of that many could become one. And so the model is still relevant as we struggle with a diverse country that is rife with divisions today. Some would say those divisions are even greater than what was faced by the 13 colonies. There is, nor has there ever been, something that has bound this country together except for one thing, and I'll come to that one thing in a second. We forget how unique an experiment the United States of America is. Come on now. There, if you look around the world, every country in the world is united typically by one of three things. They're united by a common language. Pop quiz. What's the official language of the United States of America? I love educated people. <laughs> Unlike some who like uneducated people, I love educated people. And Jefferson said if there was one, which would, anybody know what it would have been? <laughs> My version of heaven, educated people. So the second thing that unites people is that they often have a common religion. What is a common religion in the United States of America? And for those of you who like to make the argument, again, you know, look, you can have your opinion, and opinions are valid as long as there's a place for facts to challenge them and engage in reasonable conversation. Okay? And so the fact of the matter is that the people who often refer to as Christians as found in this country were actually deists. And their construct around how they saw God is very different than those people who think that they were Christians. And in fact, why do we keep on forgetting that it says, the first thing it says that, that we, the government shall make no law respecting the establishment of what? 
That makes sense for people who came here escaping religious persecution. What's, what's, what's the third thing? The third thing that often unites people is ethnicity. Now, you will never hear me use the word race unless it is defined within the context of so-called race because I'm a scientist at my core. And quite frankly, I just had my DNA done. For the record, for the record, I could be officially considered white. How does that blow you away? Because the reality of it is that we engage in phenotypes, which is appearance, that we look at appearance, we think that appearance determines something. And so again, I tell you, I'm a scientist at my core, 99.9% of our DNA is the same. In fact, there could be more difference between somebody who looks like me, meaning the same pigmentation, and somebody like you who your hair is a little long, but that's okay. You got the hair on the face, so we're doing good. <laughs> we could have some DNA. The DNA, because that's what people went by. That's what they formed opinions by, coming out of a construct in order to make some people superior to others based upon how they appeared. Now, if you think about that, is that not the most ridiculous thing in the world? That somehow you're inherently superior because of your pigmentation. Then it gets even crazier when you consider how many people spend time trying to change that pigmentation as if that's going to change their internal self. So for some, it's laying in the sun, getting a little darker. For some, it's going to the store, getting some bleach cream, getting a little lighter. We're crazy people, aren't we? <laughs> and so those are the three things that often unite and bring countries together. The United States is a unique social experiment because it has none of those things. It has none of those things. There is no, matter of fact, as I look out at this room, I can't assume who and what you are by looking at you and your ethnicity. But you're all, a, so I spend time with people from South and North America, so I had to watch when I say American. But you're all part of the United States. I don't know whether you're Native American and that your family has been here for millennium or whether your family just showed up two weeks ago or two years ago. What binds us is something that's very different. So I, I, I believe, well, well, the question that I ask myself when going through this is, so can, can we not find a common purpose for unity? Can we not all come together in love? Can we not seek out something greater than us to unite us? And the answer that I gave myself, and I invite you to explore this with me, is that I believe we can. I believe we can let go of the differences that divide us to find unity in a purpose. Maybe, maybe a purpose of creating a more perfect union. So as I begin to wrap up and be sensitive to the time, I want to invite you to join me. You don't have to. I invite you. We're Unitarian, freedom of conscience, you don't have to. <laughs> I'm at an American Baptist school, freedom of conscience is part of the mission statement, it's there. Uh, join me in a rebirth of a sense of unity amongst us by repeating after me the following words, ratified on June 21st, 1788, which served as the preamble of the Constitution 
of the United States of America. So for those who are inclined, I'm going to break it down and just repeat after me. We the people of the United States, we the of the United States. in order to form a more perfect union, Establish justice. Ensure domestic tranquility. Provide for the common defense. Promote the general welfare. And secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. I want you to reflect upon those words, because somewhere along the line, I feel as if we've lost them. Anybody else in here besides myself who served in the military? We took an oath to defend the Constitution. What branch were you in? Thank you for your service. What branch were you in? <laughs> Thank you for your service. Okay, all right. There you go. We got them surrounded now, maybe. Okay. Our oath was to defend the Constitution. And if your unit was anywhere like my unit, we had people who didn't look like us. We had people who didn't think like us. Some of us came from small towns. Some of us came from large cities. Some of us were devout Christians. Some of us were devout atheists. But we came together for a common purpose, to defend the higher ideal that was embodied within the Constitution of the United States. And let me be clear, I'm going to state this again. It doesn't mean that there haven't been flaws in trying to uphold those ideals. But some of us thought it was worth putting our lives on the line for. It was an ideal. It was a higher purpose. It was something bigger than us that we came together. So I just want you to take time to reflect and read that most important of documents that guide us. It's beyond any political party. It's beyond any person of any political party. It's beyond some of our petty differences. If we think about why we are here, we may act differently. We may think differently and use it as a perspective. I, I want to I thank you for spending time with me this morning. I hope that we can fully embrace the ideal of e pluribus unum. Out of many comes one. If I've said anything at all today that offended anyone or touched you in the wrong way, blame me. If I said anything that moved you in a positive direction and leads you to doing something good, then thank God. Be well. Be blessed.